0: Well, happy holidays, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, sign Jello. And if you follow the show and have been listening lately, you know we've been keeping pretty busy. We had three episodes in November we called Bomber Month, then we had the E-2 Hawkeye episode earlier this month. And we've got the holidays bearing down on us and the episode 100 celebration, not to mention in early 2021, episodes 101 through 106 are going to be on the Century Series fighters from the 50s and 60s. And so there's a lot going on and we're going to take a breather, but we can't leave you hanging. So we've got a fix for you out there. We have a really awesome discussion coming up. It's from our Happy Hours series. Now, if you're not familiar with Happy Hours, these are more casual discussions we have with various characters and military aviation circles. We record on Zoom so that there's a visual aspect, and unfortunately that means the audio quality suffers a little bit. But what we do is we take these and we air them on our Patreon page as exclusive content for listeners who financially support the show. And it's just a really awesome perk for them. I think you would love it if you check it out. Anyway, this particular happy hour is with retired Air Force Colonel Cesar Rodriguez, call sign Rico. And he has some incredible stories from his days flying the F-15 in operations Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and Allied Force. If you enjoyed our Desert Storm Mig killer episode with Mongo, then I think you're really going to enjoy this discussion. Yes, it's about the aircraft and the weapon systems, but I think you're really going to love the people in Rico's talk. So without any further ado, let's get to it. This is just an excerpt of it, and I'll come back and meet you at the end before we sign off for the day. All right, here we go. all right hello rico how are you
1: Jello? how are you doing my friend
0: i'm doing great all right welcome to happy hour let's see what have you got
1: i've got uh tecate
0: oh well that is appropriate you're down in tucson right that's right okay i've got a local coronado brewing company islander ipa
1: very nice so cheers sir cheers salute
0: oh man I have to tell you, I've been looking forward to this, but I've been so busy. I wanted nope, to do I'm... some research on you, but the only thing I know leading into this conversation is Top Gun Maverick trailer begins with Ed Harris saying a bunch of things about Tom Cruise. And one of them, he says, the only man to shoot down three MIGs in the last 30 years. And that's not true, is it?
1: Well, it's definitely not Tom Cruise.
0: <laughs> well, uh... I know, but don't, don't we know somebody uh, here who has uh, done something like that?
1: Yeah, I, I have been credited with uh, with three air-to-air kills in the last 30 years, post-Vietnam era. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I heard that trailer, and, and I actually said, oh, they're going to say my name. <laughs> and, then, and then they screwed it up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Well, you're just as good looking uh, as Tom Cruise, <laughs> if I may say so, sir. But Anyway. All right. Well, that's awesome. Let's, let's talk about it. And I I think I have a book over here with at least one of your stories, but you have kills in the F-15, which is behind you there. Nice uh, background. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So uh, courtesy of some very, very close friends that I can't reveal their name because they're actually in combat operations today. Oh wow! Once a year I get a nice postcard from the, uh, the dedicated crew chief and the pilot whose name is on my jet. So 114 is right behind me. She is currently flying combat operations uh, over the uh, CENTCOM AOR.
0: And that's the one you got some kills in?
1: That's the one I got uh, two of my kills in uh, on the 19th and the 26th of January in 1991. Okay. And then uh, my third kill uh, was in 169 when I was with the Grim Reapers. Uh, We called her the love machine. And... uh, (laughs) And, uh, so, uh, and that was on the 24th of March of 1999.
0: Okay. So for our non-history students in the crowd, 1991 <laughs> was Desert Storm. 1999 Correct. was Allied Force?
1: Correct. Operation Allied Force, uh, okay. NATO's first air campaign.
0: All right. All right. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, where are you from?
1: So I'm an Army brat, born in El Paso, Texas. Oh. uh uh, traveled all around the world, mostly uh, uh, South and Central America when my, with my dad, okay. uh, the, myself, and three other brothers and sisters. And then um, from El Paso, Texas, that's when I joined, uh, well, uh, uh, I went to the Citadel and then went to the Air Force from there, graduated from the Citadel in 81. 81,
0: okay and you knew you wanted to fly or did you stumble into it we've had people on the fighter pilot podcast believe it or not it's like yeah i didn't want to fly but they had an opening so i put in for it it was our f-35 guest it was really funny but uh for me i I knew yeah as long as i knew i wanted anything i wanted to fly but what about you
1: no flying was uh was literally not my my reason for uh, coming out of high school or going to college Uh, i was following in my dad's footsteps coming out of uh, high school thinking army. And so when I went to the Citadel, I started in the Army ROTC program. And then uh, my roommate and best friend uh, from the Citadel, Jim Myers, who's actually still serving in the Navy as a chaplain, oh. Jim is responsible for not only uh, uh, corrupting me on a late Friday, uh, very, very late Friday rendezvous through downtown Charleston, but he's also <laughs> responsible for waking me up the next morning. And then him and I uh, and all of the rest of the the sophomores, we went out and took the tests for the Army, Navy, Air Force and Marine Corps aviation programs. Okay. And then the results of that was that uh, I did very, very well on the Air Force test. And then the Air Force turned around and said, hey, uh, why don't you come over and join Air Force ROTC? We'll give you a two year run scholarship. And then if you pass the physical, uh, we'll send you to flight school. And at that point, that's the—that's literally the first time I ever thought of flying as something uh, to do once I graduate.
0: All right. So you were an Army brat. You went to the Citadel. Air Force wanted you. I can see where all this is going. And, of course, we know the story anyway. So you go to flight school. You do sufficiently well. Do you pick eagles right away or do you do a fape, I guess they call it, or what do you do?
1: No, uh, I actually uh, I, I miraculously completed flight school. Didn't do very well in the first <laughs> phase of it. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, instruments was a complete foreign object to me. Mm. So T37 phase was, uh, was, you know, there's times when your golf instructor tells you, you should just give up the game of golf. <laughs> there was a couple of folks in, in flight suits who were already wearing wings who said, you know, this may not be the right thing for you. And I said, no, nah, sorry, dude, I'm not giving it up. That's right. Um, so I, uh, T37s was a little bit of a rough start. Uh, T-38s, uh, I was lucky enough to get, uh, an instructor, former F-4 pilot, Wheels Wheeler, uh, was my instructor. And he, uh, he sat me down on day one and said, what do you want to do? And, um, I said, uh, I, I want to go fly fighters and my, my seatmate next to me, he says, I want to go fly 141s. And the other guy said, Hey, I, I think I want to stick around and be a T-37 or T-38 IP for a fate." Mm-hmm. And then he very quickly said, well, I don't know what, what I'm going to do for you guys because I, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not a heavy pilot. And I'm not uh, not a fan of being a FAPE or, a, or a IP here. The Rico, you and I are going to sit together and we're going to walk this path. And and so a, a, a long hill climbed together with wheels and uh, I was able to select an A-10 uh, when the draw came down for my uh, for my drop. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. So, so I started out in the A-10. All
0: right. Did you actually go fly it or did you get diverted? Or again, I don't know no, anything I, about <clears throat> you. I'm sorry to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, I flew it for two years. Okay. Went to Holloman for fighter lead-in. And then I went to Davis-Monthan for A-10 training. And then while I was at Davis-Monthan, I had an assignment to Alex, Louisiana. And uh, my, one of my partners in the class had an assignment to uh, Suwon, Korea. And his wife was getting ready to have a baby. So Haas and I made a drug deal. I told him I'd take Korea if he took Alex. Alex was perfect for him because uh, his wife was was from Eastern Texas. Okay. And then, uh, so I went to Korea and started out in the hog down there. Hmm. And uh, what was normally a one-year assignment turned out to be a two-year assignment because uh, uh, everybody, we had just built that squadron. Uh, Literally from scratch, everybody arrived almost at the same time. Hmm. So everybody was going to PCS at the same time. And so uh, my squadron commander said, hey, uh, you know, you've been here a lot uh, for a full year. You've done a lot of good things as a lieutenant. Um, if we upgrade you to IP and, and make you a you know, mission commander and everything else, would, would you stay around as a, for another year? And I said, sure, I'll take that, uh, that, ta- that job any day. And so, uh, in in the course of two years, I accumulated a little over almost 900 hours in the A10.
0: Holy cow!
1: <laughs> I was uh, I was as a lieutenant, I was the Detco for uh, four deployments down to the Cope Thunder in the Philippines, and then uh, so I, I flew a, I flew my tail off when I was there at Suwan. Uh, I would we all day. Yeah, yeah, I
0: mean, guys are lucky to get 150 hours a year right now. That's 450 yeah. hours a year. Holy smokes!
1: Yeah, we, okay. we had uh, no real, uh, there was no real control, if you will, to the flying schedule. As long as the Army put out an ATO up north in P518, we supported it. And sometimes we'd go 20 or 30 days in a row without stopping. And, and then, then we would you know stand down for three days. Uh, the maintenance team was obviously awesome to keep that, that kind of an ops tempo going. Mm-hmm. and uh, we'd stand down, and then we'd start uh, flying again, pick up the ATO, and there off we went. Wow. Well,
0: obviously, the, what I'm really hoping to get to is the stories of these shoot-downs, but I just have to ask you on the A-10, I mean, come on, how was that gun?
1: That gun is pretty badass, and, uh, <laughs> you know, there are many folks who would, uh, both on the ground and, unfortunately, not uh, with real bullets, but with video bullets or, or HUD film, uh, there are many of folks who have found themselves uh, inside of the, the well inside of the, the lethal range of the gun uh, with a Pipper track, thinking that the, the A ten couldn't have done that. But uh, when you now now that they have uh, lead computing sights and everything, it's very clear that uh, even as slow as you're going, uh, when you get those thirty millimeter mic mics out in front of the uh, uh, whatever airplane you're going. That metal will rip you to pieces. Oh man! And so, uh, but yeah, uh, the A10 gun is pretty amazing. What's really amazing is you don't feel it at all in the cockpit. Oh, wow. um, you actually, I actually felt the 20 millimeter gun in the F15 more than I felt the A10 t- 30 millimeter gun, hmm. and the gun was literally, you know, between your legs. Uh, the barrel was you know, right there, so yeah. you thought you'd feel it more, but you, you never got anything except uh, the only thing you could tell that, that you had shot the gun was you'd look at your G-meter, and it would spike in both the positive and the negative because of the, the, the hypersonics of, or the, the sonic booms of the gun itself. But That's crazy. It's a pretty amazing weapon.
0: Yeah. yeah. Our uh, A-10 guest on the show, it's been over a year, I want to say, uh, Supa. He was also from Tucson, as it turns out. But I guess you have a ten units based down there. But uh, we, you know, we have this structure on the Fighter Pilot Podcast when we do our aircraft series. Okay, what was it designed to do? What does it do well? Blah blah blah. But that was a fun one because I said, all right, screw all that, Supa. Tell me about the gun. <laughs> and we talked about the, the nose being, or I should say, the nose wheel being offset, and and the rate of fire, and the rounds, and the depleted uranium, and everything else. So uh, yeah, that. I don't have a lot of regrets, but it would have been fun to, in a you know, Groundhog Day life, if I could go back and fly that thing for a tour. That would be pretty amazing. But I guess what I really want to know next is how on earth. There's not too many guys that go from A tens to F 15s are there? Uh, no,
1: actually, uh, not many. You know, there was many of the, of the leadership team in Holloman who questioned my sanity and my, <laughs> well, my logic, my thinking. Is that why the hell are you? you're asking for, for an F-15 out of Holloman. You know, you're, you're, you're going to get whatever you want. And I say, well, I wanted to fly an F-15 from the very get-go. Uh, so uh, I want to do it again, try it. And uh, so uh, sure enough, uh, uh, got an F-15, uh, got it to Eglin, and I went to Tyndall for, uh, for, for F-15 training. Oh, cool. Yeah, the uh, bad thing was, you know, if, if I could have gone through an entire B course, uh, that would have been pretty cool. Would but they, they give gave me what they, the, the, they called the TX course, okay. which is uh, much less than the number of hours that you would get in a B course. So uh, uh, it, it really was a, a very steep learning curve for me. And uh, uh, there, there, was, there was literally some days when, uh, when the drool cup uh, felt like the entire cockpit. I, I just couldn't figure out which end was up but you know i had some really good instructors who said hey rico slow it down you know one step at a time let's get this right let's get this right and and then i'll be honest with you that's when i truly became a a fan uh and a believer that you can teach a monkey how to how to fly a jet because (laughs) i spent a lot of time in the simulator late at night and the sim guys at Tyndall were like going rodriguez what the hell are you doing here again i go hey
2: I, I need to, to figure edit. out
1: what this bit thing does, you know because i don't I, I know what the button is, or where the button is i just don 't know what it's doing,
0: yeah
1: and so so I would what? go spend hours in this yeah. thing.
0: What year did you first fly the f fifteen or go to Tyndall then nineteen
1: eighty uh, the fall of eighty eight
0: okay, so um, by the time Desert Storm kicks off you 're not a new pilot by any stretch, but also you 've got a couple of years in the Eagle at that point i mean do you Do you go to yeah. a deploying squadron after your training or what do you do?
1: Yeah, so we, uh, I went to Eglin uh, with the 58th Fighter Squadron down at Eglin, the guerrillas, And Hako uh, Geisler was a squadron commander, uh, world famous uh, F-15 and a Red Eagle uh, kind of guy. Okay. And he, he literally was handpicking people from various places, weapons school, uh, 422. Uh, we had Chuck McGill come in from the Marine Corps. I mean, we had a, a stud team of instructors and weapons officers, and uh, it wasn't that he knew we were going to war. He just uh, didn't want anywhere we went. He didn't want us to be going there to be viewed as the, as the second rate citizens. We we were going there to win, uh, to kick ass, to to take no names, nice. and move on. And so he he built a very very solid team of which I was lucky enough to join. And of course uh you know the the lessons that that you learn when when you fly a point eight mission, but you debrief for six hours <laughs> you, you, you get to be uh, you start to learn oh, yeah. or, or you or you uh, you get walked out the door yeah, so in that area you know, walking out yeah. the door was still a possibility
0: it's I'm so glad you said that because one of the things I do on the fighter Pilot podcast is try to convince the listeners, whose only experience maybe besides the show is Hollywood, that it's not anything like Hollywood, because if it was, nobody would go see the movie. So we have these enormously drawn-out, laborious, detailed debriefs of every little thing we did. What were we thinking? How could we do it better next time? And if you're lucky enough, you can go out and do it right away. But otherwise, you may wait a day or two, and then you finally get to go out. But, yeah, it's it's painful. I was at Top Gun, so I, I know the yeah. drill.
1: So. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I use the analogy too, and even in business today, that uh, um, the hardest part of closing a deal should be what you do to get ready for the deal. Mm. And so, when I do red team reviews with my team as we're getting ready to go into contract negotiations or anything like that, you know, I play the, the mean, bad customer who's just going to take, is not going to take anything for an answer except what mm. they want. And, you know, people get really, You know, mad and pissed off. Hey, hey, hold on a second. This is to get you better, so that when you walk into the real fight or the real negotiation, you're in a better position. You're thinking on your feet as opposed to reacting with your emotion, and uh, and that's kind of how I brief. I I I correlate the the uh, the debrief. Yeah. Is uh, you know there was times in the debrief when uh, it really felt like the only answer was to start crying. (laughs) but you know that wouldn't have gone over very well so
0: (laughs) well they say there's no crying in baseball I would say there's no crying in air combat either but no you're right uh you were chair flying effectively right you were what ifing, we would call it and all these other things but I think the debrief is important too particularly now I don't even know what you do or the application you were talking about but I'd be willing to bet knowing you and I are cut from the same cloth as so many people who have experiences like ours do. I bet if you don't get the deal, even though you chair flew it, when you get back, I'm guessing you take your team and you debrief what happened. Don't you? You say, Oh yeah. We
1: debrief it to yeah. the Nats oh, yeah. and and try and figure out how did we miss something? That's right. You know, d- did, did we not do our competitive intelligence properly mm-hmm. and somebody underbid us uh, or did we say something wrong in the, in the presentation that, that made our story look uh, less valuable to the customer. Yeah. Same thing, and and you know, the average industry guy brushes it off, win or loss. They kind of brush it off and go, "Hey, lesson learned." Well, off you go. Uh-uh. I put together a, a bigger binder of the loss than I did of the of the win, right. so that nobody repeats the mistakes that we did.
0: Yeah. Willie Driscoll, I'm guessing you know who he is. He's got a book oh, yeah. out, uh, Peak Performance Under Pressure, and he talks about postmortems and debriefs. And And again, I, I think the natural inclination, if anyone's going to spend any time, is to figure out what went wrong. But a lot of times, it's good also to say, hey, we got it. We chair flew it, we expected to get it, and we got it. But did we get it for the reasons we thought? Did we do everything the way we wanted to? And so I think debriefs, I've been contemplating writing. I do a little writing on the side for this show. I've got a little blog called Musings, and I've been contemplating doing one on the, the benefit of debriefs, because I don't think in normal day-to-day living, a lot of people do it, and I think it's starting to show up more in business, but uh, it's certainly something we did in our military careers. I know that.
1: Yeah, and you know, uh, from red flag to, to, to top-cut debriefs to one-on-one uh, BFM debriefs, uh, every one of those is a building block to getting to the next step. Right. And uh, and if you don't really take it to heart, if you don't uh, take those lessons and and apply them, then, you know, one of the things that I tell people, you know, that I get asked a lot is, so how did you feel when you went to combat? And I said, I'll be honest with you. The the scariest part of the whole drill was stepping to the jet, knowing that there's going to be live weapons on the airplane. And when you took off and someone said, uh, master arm hot, you know, something was going to be coming off the jet that was the scariest part. Everything else, you know, when you start doing the check-in, when you start looking at doing your radar discipline, the radar search, all of that, if you did it the right way and and you debrief it the right way, and you set up those habit patterns, that part became pretty much a a cakewalk, if you will.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, Rico, uh, the few times the chips were down for me, and it sounds like you're, you had more opportunities than I did. We'll get to that. But I would say my biggest fear and I'm not trying to sound stoic or brave or anything else. My biggest fear wasn't so much the physical harm to me. It was, I didn't want to screw up. Oh. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to forget to arm up and try to pull the trigger. I didn't want to make myself look bad or God forbid, put my wingman in a situation or good grief, get him shot down or her. So I, you know, for me it was, <laughs> I just, I didn't want to screw up more than anything when, when the chips yeah, were I, down.
1: I, I said a prayer for every mission that I flew in combat and and the final words were, please, God, don't let me F it up.
0: (laughs) I'll tell you this real quick. And and again, this is more about you, but uh, part of the workups we do in the Navy is we'll sit off the coast of whichever coast we were based on. Uh, In my case, it was off the coast of San Diego and we did this enormously long, complex strike from the ship all the way up the state of California into Nevada and we were dropping those laser guided training rounds, those little blue fake laser guided weapons. And I forgot to unbox Sim. Uh, And so it didn't come off. And I go all the way back, you know, the whole mission's like two and a half, three hours. And I was the training officer in the squadron. I was a top gun graduate. And I just hung my head. But then I also stood up and I said, this is what I did. And if I can do it, anyone can do it. And this is the mistake I made and this is what I learned. And here's my slice of humble pie and it's delicious, but I didn't try to brush it off or jettison the thing over the water, pretending it was fine. I I, I lived up to it and it sucked, but (laughs) that was, that was the most uh, memorable one for me.
1: Well, you know, and that ties into the debrief, you know, uh, we had, I had a phenomenal group of weapons officers and instructor pilots and to the man, uh, they all, uh, as the debrief was going on, they also were as critical of themselves as they were of, yeah. of my performance and, and vice versa. You know, it was good. It was you know. And so that really made the debrief a, a truly a two-way dialogue. But that's, that, um, you know, I'll be the first to tell you, that wasn't the norm. The fighter community uh, has both good and bad from the standpoint of wanting to be thick skinned, but at the same yeah. time, doesn't you don't want to air your dirty laundry yeah uh, so uh I, I was blessed i was lucky i had some really talented dudes and and they were as, as hard on themselves as they were as uh, hard on me
0: you know and, and that's a funny statement uh not funny haha but when i started this podcast it's been over three years now three two i don't know whatever it's been um people would tell me like quit pointing out your errors and mistakes and I still do it. I just recorded something right before we got on here and uh it was for another happy hour thing that I was going to air out for everyone and I said, "Oh, you know, I you'll hear me making a bunch of sounds while he's talking and blah blah blah." Anyway, point being is I think it's ingrained in us that if if we make a mistake, we almost have to point it out first because if we let someone else point it out, it's almost like we're not we don't either don't care enough or yeah. we're not paying attention enough. And so I kind of carried that into podcasting at first, and I've had enough people tell me to quit that I think I've finally deprogrammed myself. Well, maybe not. I guess I just did it. But anyway, um, so it, it's just, I think, I don't know. It's because if you come back to the debrief, if you and I fly together, and I start doing the debrief, let's say, and there's something gross that I don't bring up, and you're like, uh, hey, Jello, uh, then you did this. And I say, oh, oh yeah, uh, I didn't want to talk about it. I mean, that's it's unprofessional.
1: <laughs> yeah oh no and, and of course if you if you do that in the red flag scenario you're going to get crucified by by red air when they say stop you know eagle so and so you know we're two and a half miles at your six you don't even see us what the hell and, and you you come back with oh we didn't care about you no that's that's oh not yeah thing. you, you got to own up to it
0: yeah and that's the only thing worse than not bringing it up first is then when somebody does blowing it off and again just like anything in life there are people that do it better than others but anyway i've been rambling for 30 minutes here and uh, i'm guessing people want to know about your shoot down so let me ask you this where were you in august 1991 no august 1990
1: so in august 1990 i was at at gulfport mississippi okay um i was leading a detachment of uh six f-15s against the, uh, the Missouri guard who were getting ready to retire their F fours and then eventually receive the F 15. Okay. And so we, uh, we were, we were fighting uh, for a week and the last day uh, I want to say it was a Thursday. Uh, there was this big, huge blowout plan for that evening. Uh, we went out and did a six V I want to say 14. It could have been 16, oh, but we smoked them. There nice. wasn't a single one left, and they're like going, "Damn, you know this this F-15 is badass, and, and we're glad we get getting."
0: <laughs> and I got to interrupt. This is in the day of sparrows, right?
1: Uh, we we were uh, we had Amram's already okay. in the C right. model. We were the first squadron to fly them.
0: Okay, uh, we, but
1: we were flying uh, both a combination. You know, we built it up, so we did some some heaters and guns exercises. Then we did uh, you know all aspects. Uh, we didn't have a 9 x so we were still in the sure. dinosaur era of an IR missile. Uh, and then the last day, we were we were shooting AMRAMs. Uh so it was it was a it was an unfair fight the way it should have been. Mm-hmm. And so as we got back and we're coming back uh, up initial, I get a call from the from the top three on the desk, and he says, "Hey Rico, I need to talk to you when you shut down." And he says, uh, "Tell everybody not to open a beer." <laughs> and I go, okay. So I pass it on to the guys and said, okay, something's going on, but we get down, we land. The the top three says, Hey, the squadron wants you to, uh, uh, to, to, to put the jets back on, take the jets back to Eglin tonight. Um, and uh, so we need to pack up, get everybody out of here. And then uh, we'll, we'll get everybody home tomorrow as once we get you guys out of here. So I called back to Eglin, and uh, I, I talked to the Eglin guys. They said, yeah, bring it on in. And they just said, hey, uh, make sure you, uh, you do not uh, fill up the wing tanks because we were carrying wing tanks uh, for this deployment. Don't fill the wing tanks. Just stay the internal fuel only. And then, uh, and when you get back and you land, uh, we'll tell you uh, where you're going to go park. It won't be normal parking. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So sure enough, uh, we'd land about 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night. And the entire ramp was lit up with light alls and everything you can imagine. Weapons trucks were flying left and right, delivering weapon, live weapons to the jets. Wow. And so we were we were loading the jets uh, to go to uh, respond to uh, to the Iraqi invasion. Okay. So uh, that's where we were in August. Um, you know, my my daughter was born in July. Oh
2: geez. Uh,
1: yeah. So. <laughs> uh, and, and by the end of the month, we were on the road, headed to Desert Shield.
0: Did you fly one of the birds over? I did. Okay.
1: Well, the first jet that I was flying over, uh, about uh, two to 300 miles east of Charleston, I developed an engine fire and had to take it into Langley. Oh, gosh. Uh, so flew the jet back to Langley with my wingman. Uh, two days later, they swapped the, the engine out. I flew it back to Eglin and then... Seven days after that, uh, flew the, with the second group of guys uh, to, to, to Saudi Arabia okay. and flew jets into there.
0: How, what was the longest uh, single flight you had in that whole thing?
1: Uh, well, uh, the, the actual uh, from Eglin to Saudi Arabia to Tabuk, Saudi Arabia, was 19 hours. We had 12 air <laughs> refuelings. We had to go uh, via the uh, – we didn't get to go north. Over Europe, We had to go straight from Charleston to the Straits of Gibraltar because of a big, huge uh, hurricane in the North Atlantic. Oh, my gosh. You Were you in the
0: seat for 19 hours?
1: Oh, I was in the seat for 22 hours. <laughs> I was in the seat for almost an hour and a half before we pulled chocks. Oh uh, and then I was gosh. in the seat to book for almost an hour until they got to my jet to shut it down because what we found out was... In the shutdown process, the, the guys had lost all real physical motion of their legs. Uh, they were just numb Yeah, and so I would think. <laughs> uh, yeah so we were uh, we were holding the jets on, uh, on one engine uh, until you had an entire crew and they they would bring uh, two, two, two stands to the jet and then two people picked you up and they held you. <laughs> Until you had enough blood flowing up and down your legs so that you didn't uh, fall <laughs> down and, and come tumbling off the can out of the canopy rope.
0: I okay, we could spend an hour on this and I won't, but oh my heavens. I because I don't know if you know Terry Scott call sign stretch. He might have been after oh, I know time. stretch
1: very well. Oh, do you okay?
0: <laughs> so he we talked about this on his F-22 episode on the show because someone had asked about it. I've never done a, a cross Pacific or Atlantic flight my longest flight six and a half hours and you did that three or four times over but i just i can't imagine what your body goes through what your brain goes through how many piddle packs you had and empty pb and j wrappers and let's not get into either one of those but holy smokes okay so you had a couple of days to acclimate and then you guys start flying desert storm uh patrols i assume desert, no, shield. desert shield thank you yeah i knew it was yeah. wrong uh so let's i mean so You said, I think earlier, January 19th, let's talk about 16 through 18. Are you flying patrol missions uh, the first few nights of the war?
1: Yeah. So, um, for us, the night of the 16th in, in the region, I flew the last four ship that was desert shield. Oh, wow. Okay. And so we, we, we took off and, uh, basically we had a lot of uh, what I would call, uh, cat-and mouse type of uh, runs to see if anybody was awake okay we were checking you know to see if anybody if, if the Iraqis were doing anything were they doing anything out of the normal that, that our sensors could pick up so we did that and the normal you know six or seven o'clock in the evening we are you know checking out and heading headed north or headed west uh, back to our base and again not trying to elevate or raise any awareness you know and so by that time uh, a lot of the airplanes had already started to launch to the south and then they were they were headed to the refueling tracks for the eventual night one push okay yeah we
0: had uh mark hasera on the show recently sluggo i don't know if you know him but i think he was instrumental in a lot of the tanker plans there so when you said that it rung a bell um oh yeah okay so what a couple days of uh dca or i don't know oca i don't know what you were doing but uh just briefly and then i'd like to talk about the the three events if you're willing
1: yeah so um you know the the first few days it was really from um, uh i was on a dca rotation um and so uh uh you know uh, on the the morning of the 17th uh, you know that day i flew three times uh, on the 18th i flew three times you know How long 19th, was each uh, flight? sorry averaging about 6-8 to eight hours
0: total or per fight uh
1: total Oh, okay. I mean, so per per sortie yeah
0: wait hold so on we, so you did you did three six hour sorties
1: yeah so we would lay, take off uh do our mission come back and land take off and do our second mission then go sit alert which was almost at, at the in the early phases of the war alert was a guaranteed third sortie. <laughs> so uh yeah it was it was pretty brutal uh, right. In the sense of uh, uh, of of the op, the, the human op tempo that we were going through.
0: In case I forget to ask Um, later, how many hours did you end up with in the military, let's say, for starters?
1: Oh, the military was about uh, 3,600 hours. How
0: about in the Eagle?
1: Uh, In the Eagle, just a little over 1,500 hours.
0: Okay. Well, that sounds like it all came in a concentrated
1: point of time.
0: But anyway. Yeah,
1: the majority of my hours (laughs) were definitely uh, as a gorilla.
0: Yeah. All right. So, uh, you started talking about the morning of the 19th.
1: Yeah. So the, uh, the, we took off like at four in the morning. Uh, we was initially, uh, you know, that, that vault period was started at uh, six in the morning. So took off, uh, hit the tankers, took over relief of the cap. We did about two hours of cap time. And then, uh, AWACS called us up and said, Hey, uh, you guys, uh, the OCA for, uh, this this strike package that's being picked up uh, is is stuck on the ground. They were Langley birds. They were weathered out,
2: mm.
1: and so we uh, uh, so AWAX asked us. You know uh, the they, they came up and said, Hey, the new OCA is scrambling out of Tabuk, and they're asking for you to to send the two ship to the tanker to be ready to be the post strike sweep. So I sent three and four first to the tanker to to get as much gas as they could. And they would manage the, the DCA cap and then Craig Underhill and I took, uh, after they got back on station, we went to the tanker and uh, started uh, you know, refueling and then getting on frequency with the new strike package and, and what they were going to do. And this strike package, uh, outside of the ATO, they had found a, a large uh, munition storage area southwest of Baghdad, about 60 or 70 miles and uh, they'd been tracking some vehicles going underground and, and all that. So they said, okay, we, it wasn't on a, a normal target list. So they scrambled all the strikers, air to air, harm shooters, uh, you name it. Uh, they were all part of the this strike package. And and so they were, we were going to be the two ship post-strike sweep for this event. And then, so uh, just to have the Rick Delaney's four ship was the one who was on alert they scrambled. Uh, Rick and I, you know, obviously, we were in the same squadron. We had the same squadron standards, so the, the basic briefing was everything is standard, nice. and uh, and off we went. Um, when the strike package pushed, uh, Rick Tallini's, uh four ship engaged uh, a series of MIGs and an F and one F one, two Mig thirty ones, and an F one for it was the final uh, count that we had. AWACS at, at some points. Tended to think that there was more in the air, but that was really all that we had radar data on. Mm -hmm. Rick and and, uh, Cherry Pitts end up scoring two kills uh, in that group. The F one that kind of cut through the formation and then dove into the into the clouds below the the, the, where the guys were flying was never. uh, We never targeted him again. Nobody ever saw him again. Okay, Um, but uh, bottom line is Rick and his four ship had jettisoned all their fuel tanks. And they never made it to the target area. Uh-huh. So uh, strike, pack, strike leaders said, uh, we're going to press anyway. And it made sense. Uh, you know, they, they were also carrying uh, air-to-air AMRAMs uh, with the F-16s. But at the time, once we got that word, we, Mole and I pushed it up into the high 50s and pushed out in front of the strike package to get caught up with them and then get out in front of them. And as we were getting out in front of them, we started to build the radar picture that had a one group way out to the West, which really wasn't a factor per se. And then one group that was starting to generate outside of Baghdad and came on a direct vector towards the, the leading edge of the strike package. Hmm. So that's the group that we pretty much uh, focused our attention on.
0: Yeah. Hey, can I interrupt? You said MiG-31. Did you mean 23 or 25? I don't think Iraq had MiG-31. No, contacts. excuse me, 25s.
1: 25s. 20, okay, I
0: thought so. Yeah. Very similar, yeah. but uh, nope. okay. Anyway, up until this point, had there been other kills? So the flight right ahead of you got two. What about like on the opening night or two or three of the war? Were other, other guys getting kills? Was it fairly yeah. common or fairly
1: rare still? No, I would say, uh, you know, so opening night, J.B. Kelk uh, got a a score to kill. We had three kills in our squadron on opening night. Wow. And then Langley had one kill on opening night. So there was a total of four that were credited on opening night. Day two, Sly McGill and uh, Rory Drager uh, scored air-to-air kills. And then so here we are going into day three. And uh, so we get okay. two ship first and then uh, mole and I will eventually get two more that day. Wow. Um, so it, uh, there was, there was definitely opportunity. Um, but when you think about it, you count all the F-15 and all the air to air shooter noses that were in the AOR probably felt like a, a very limited opportunity for, for most folks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and everybody, I mean, I don't know, not to go off script too much, but, I, it's not like you want to take a life, right. Or, or, or you're not hoping for this to happen, but if it's going to happen, you want to be part of it. Cause this is what we trained to do.
1: Yeah. I mean uh, you, that, that you hit the nail on the head. That's what we yeah. trained to do.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, uh, and, and I can tell you that in, in the act uh, of preparing uh, master arm, hot, all that kind of stuff that felt as, as common as a good tactical sim, or a good run to the, to, to uh, Nellis, everything was uh, what I call what we had trained to do. It's the post, post-kill post uh, activities syndrome thing that I call, uh, where every once in a while I just wake up in a dead sweat, and I'm sitting there going, holy smokes, you know, it could have been me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was one, you know, if, if I had done this, you know, I would have done, I would have been there. Right, and so uh, it comes back to you in different stages yeah. of your life. Oh, yeah, but I bet. Uh, uh, but while you're there, it felt just like a normal training session.
0: Yeah. Okay. I didn't mean to detract <laughs> you from
1: the <this> story. There. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. So uh, so Mole and I we we concentrate our efforts on the Make Twenty Nines. Uh, we don't know their Make Twenty Nines at the point, but they they're coming out of Baghdad. Uh, but what becomes very clear uh, in what they end up doing. They come at us in a red cell, i.e., we can't break them out in the, on the radar.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: a, re, a very tight formation. When they start to break out out of their red cell into a tactical formation, so now they're flying about a mile a line abreast. They take it down. They start out around uh, eight to ten thousand feet. They take it down. Uh, we're still now in the high thirties. We're ramping down from fifty to thirty. Uh, they take it down. At exactly 12 nautical miles, boom, they take a beam maneuver, which, for those who are on the call, uh, that was a known, not a publicly known, but it was a known tactical deficiency in our radar that we had some blind zones. And they hit the blind zones exactly you know on the number.. Oh, wow. um, and so mole and I break lock. we knew what to do. Uh, we start to pick them up as they're in their beam maneuver. and then as they're in their beam maneuver, and they start their drag. They literally are dragging right outside, initially right outside of the ragged edge of an M7 shot, okay. a Sparrow shot. Okay. But as we're ramping down, we're starting to you know get put the pull them into the Wes. But as you well know, with a Sparrow, you got to hold the missile until impact. It's not like an Amram, right. which you can shoot and and launch and leave. And so, literally, as the MIGs are starting to, uh, I mean, they're they're in the heart of the envelope for a sparrow. Period. Dot. I hear the strike package leader call Miller time, which was the code for the last last uh, guy uh, is down the chute. Okay, and then I'm getting ready to hit the button for Mole and I to abort when my original Western AWACS controller calls out on guard uh, Sitco pop-up contacts, three, three, zero for eight. So mathematically I've got two make 29s dragging in front of me at about 11 miles and, and, uh, they don't have opening V C, but I can catch them if I want to. Mm-hmm. But I, I also know that I'm also going to now enter into the mez for Baghdad. Okay. The strike package has done their business. So I really don't need to be here anymore. And now off of my left nine o'clock, which is three three zero for my for my formation, eight miles, my original AWACS controller says, somebody is there that you don't want to be there. <laughs> so immediately I turn hard left to 330. Uh, I don't remember, this is now habit patterns taken over. I don't remember reaching down and jettisoning my fuel tanks. <laughs> but when I jettison my fuel tanks and I turn to three three zero. I generate a huge con around my jet, which my wingman, who's two and a half miles off my right wing, when he's looking now to the west, to 330, he sees three fuel tanks flying off, off my jet. He sees a big, huge con ball, uh, and he's like going, oh, my God, Rico just get hit. Um, as I roll out to 330, I take the F-15's autogun system Throw it out of the 330 heading and immediately I get a lock and it's at eight miles.
2: The, the good
1: news is I've, I've got good correlation and I've got some radar essay as to what's there. The bad news is the rules of engagement that we had still at that point in Desert Storm required anything inside of 10 miles to be visually identified. Hmm. Why did we have that in the rules of engagement? The rules of engagement were written for all of the platforms that were in the AOR to include the 117 at night in certain scenarios, we could have found them. We wouldn't have known it was them. So that's that, that rule of engagement was put in place for protection. Okay. It didn't have a clause that said day or night. It just said the rule was uh, hmm. if you get an auto locked auto gun system lock inside of 10 miles, you got a VID. So uh, we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard spot. Yeah. And uh, did not opt to, uh, to, to wing it uh, and take a BVR shot, even though I was carrying a MiG-29 spike on my RWR, and I had not completed my ID matrix. So I had, didn't, had no idea of uh, mode 1, mode 2, uh, mode 4, uh, or anything else.
0: The spike you were talking about is coming from the 330 bearing? yeah okay. all right and then just for everyone who might be listening later the mode one two and four you're talking about uh, are the different transponder settings if you will of an IFF and uh, that's a whole we haven't even touched on that here on the show yet but different ways to identify friend or foe as IFF stands for okay so are you wearing night vision goggles
1: no no this is now the middle of the day and oh, we, don't, we okay. didn't have goggles at the time uh, you didn't anyway we, we okay, took awesome. off at night but we we're, it's now oh, okay uh, gotcha. approaching you know like 10, 30 in the in the morning okay all right so when i get spiked i uh give as much radar data to my wingman verbally and then i do a a, a beam notch if you will i i roll inverted pull straight down to to the dirt and and I am pointing straight at the ground. My goal there is one to get below the, the radar plane of motion of the MiG twenty nine, so I can uh, start becoming part of the ground clutter. Uh, I start pumping out a bunch of chaff to try and uh, to, you know decoy my airplane, so the the air the MiG has a hard time looking at me. It, it's not a hard solution for his airplane because he's he's got a blue sky background, so I got to make it hard for him. He's at eight thousand feet, so I'm. I'm passing through 35 and screaming, uh, straight at the dirt. And then as I'm starting my level off, you know, I start the level off about, you know, two 3000 feet and eventually get down to about 500 feet on the, on the deck. But now the the spike continues to follow my airplane, uh, off now off my right wing. So I, at least I know it's on the right wing somewhere,
2: mm-hmm. but I,
1: I just can't find this guy. And I am doing the funky chicken in the cockpit, trying to find this guy in the sky where as you remember at Top Gun, you would say, hey, don't scan this guy. Look in one spot. Look for some contrast, and then you'll pick up the early tally-ho. If I had a, a Go camera on my head at that point, it would have looked like the spinning top <laughs> um, going crazy trying to find this guy because yeah. the, the audio of the MiG-29 was obviously getting tighter and tighter. What I didn't know at the time, obviously, while I was flying, was that um, uh, our total package team – the EC-130 team was aware of what had just happened, and they were on his on his frequency, and they were jamming the piss out of him. So he was getting both radar jamming and audio jamming, which complicated, you know, his eventual shoot solution. When I hear my wingman uh, confirm he's completed the uh, the ID matrix, Rivet Joint gives him a declaration also that it's a mig Twenty Nine hostile. At the time, I'm still going straight downhill when mole calls Fox three. Uh, so when I look up over my shoulder uh, at high seven, I see his uh, his missile come off his airplane, start to generate a huge smoke trail. And the smoke trail is trailing across my tails, pointing to my right three o'clock. Completely out of the wild blue, as I f- see his missile stop smoking, I use that little pencil beam of smoke and, and follow the line and boom, I pick up a MiG-29 uh, the silhouette pointing straight at me, about three to three and a half miles off my right wing, he's pure pursuing me the whole way. And then next thing I know, boom! Big, huge sparkler in the sky. Moles missile uh, hits that uh, that MiG twenty nine smack in the nose. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, the pictures that are out there, but there there's several pictures of the HUD field of view. They were they were recovered by some special ops guys. And the the HUD field of view shows the AIM-7 Sparrow, uh, the rods of the AIM-7 expanding, literally, you know, feet in front of the HUD, uh, so you know what's coming. It's just going to rip rip that airplane to pieces.
0: I have seen a picture like that. Uh, truthfully, I never believed it. So you're saying that's real, huh?
1: Oh, yeah, very wow. real. Wow,
0: okay. Well, yeah. I believe you. Um, All right, so that, yeah. was, uh, that was one MiG-29. Was there more than one, I take it?
1: Yeah, so um, at that point, uh, I am at 500 feet. Uh, mole is about 25,000 feet. Uh, we're both kind of going same way, same day, on a westerly kind of heading. And then again, uh, Boner comes up on, vo- on guard and says, Sitco, second group, north 10. So at that point, I go, if, if I get the math wrong, that puts the guy seven miles at my tail if I, if I check the south. So I, boom, check the formation to north, and we both get uh, a hit right at about 10 nautical miles on our radar scope. We both start to do the ID matrix. I get a hostile indication when I complete my ID matrix, my wingman gets a friendly. As it turns out, he actually has friendlies, because as high as he is, he's got friendlies uh, way beyond the, the the radar yeah. line of sight.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So he's getting, uh, a, a, an error that is conservative, which is the right thing right. for me. I'm looking uh, purely at the beam, uh, looking up and I don't have anything in the background. So that was the lesson learned in, in the debrief. Why did this happen like this? But the, the, the end result was I had one friendly declaration. I had one hostile. I declared myself as the, the eyeball on a shooter eye formation. And then, so at, at about four and a half miles, I started to do a pure pursuit from 5,000 feet to 8,000 feet, put the MiG-29 on the TD box. And the first time I could see him visually, because that was really now the requirement, he looked like a, a F-18. He looked like an F-15. He looked like everything that we flew because I couldn't see the, the background, of the, the color background. Mm-hmm. So as it turns out, I continued my, my lead pursuit on him. I cross about 50 feet off of his left wing at a very high uh, angle of it. I'm, I'm doing about 120 degrees nose up, and he's pretty much wings level. When I cross him right there is the first time I see the Iraqi flag and the brown and green camouflage, and I call, you know, hospital make-29." Uh, wow. Then I start a hard left turn, climbing left turn in, in my, from, from where I was coming from. And when I look over my shoulder, he has started a level turn right on the horizon, hasn't changed his plane of motion. I don't know if he sees my wingman. Uh, So when I see that he starts a level turn, I literally flip the airplane, roll inverted, and do a split S to the inside of the circle to now meet him at the first 180 with a 90 degree heading crossing angle. So I've already gained 90 degrees of angles on him. And then he still doesn't see me or at least he's not responding to me. So I'm on the outside of his circle I pull for everything that the Eagle has, uh, and and I probably think there was more. But uh, when we got home, uh, I had several pulls on the, on the airplane in excess of 10 Gs oh, um, uh, on this particular fight. Uh, but I pulled to the inside of the circle, and when I crossed his extended tail and now get to the inside of the circle, I still have over 200 knots of closure on him. So he's he's not flying a very aggressive jet. But that's the first time he puts his lift vector on my jet and starts to turn in my direction. So I know now that he's aware. At this point, my wingman has sanitized the airspace around us. And uh, he actually has a short window to say, hey, Rico, you know, I can come in and I just go stand by.
0: You got yours.
1: Yeah, you got yours on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you so yeah. that fight starts to you know obviously deteriorate closer and closer to the ground. Uh, we do two three sixties from about six thousand feet to about a thousand feet AGL. At about a thousand feet AGL, I pull to the inside of the circle to to try and get one what I call really hard of the envelope uh, a seven sparrow shot, just to bring the, the the ASC circle in and take that shot. You know, other people have told me, and I believe it. You know, when when you're in an eagle, and you know you're inside of two to three thousand feet, and you pull that much lead. It literally looks like you're going for a gunshot. So he's at about eight hundred to six hundred feet. He rolls inverted and starts the classic split S, or what I thought was going to be the the MiG twenty nine Cobra maneuver. When he rolls inverted, I was not going to follow him through that point because I can already sense that what I see in the desert, these aren't you know big trees; these are little bushes, and the bushes are getting big. So I pull quarter plane to the high six of the uh, of the MiG twenty nine. Uh, roll inverted. Start to put my nose back into him, and and he literally hasn't even hit perpendicular. Uh, his afterburners are now cooking; they weren't cooking before. Uh, and he hits uh, he hits the desert floor and starts to tumble for what seems to be you know several miles of maneuvering from there. Wow! And so very quickly after that, you know, my wingman comes up and says, "Hey, uh, tactical right side." So I look off to my right side and sure enough, at two miles, there he is. And then we snap to south and we start to get the hell out of Dodge.
0: Wow. Well, good on starting at the end, good on your wingman for being right where he's supposed to be after all that. That's crazy. I do want to touch on the ambiguity of the visuals of the MiG-29 because I used to be the threat aircraft me at Top Gun and in the Uh, early 2000s, right before the flanker became the percentage threat, it was the MiG-29. And that was one of the things I used to talk about, is you've got the twin vertical stabilizers, a lot like an Eagle, but you've got the size, you've got the leading edge extensions of an F-18. So it really was uh, very ambiguous, frankly. And we... Rico, I can't tell you how many VIDs I did over my career in training. You really did a no kidding standby and you called the fin flash. That's amazing to me. Yeah. And then you were in a dogfight. Wow. All right. And then you didn't have to employ any weapons. Uh, You get the kill here. I I take it. There was no uh, effort for ejection. Was he probably looking over his shoulder at you maybe?
1: Yeah, there was no attempt for an ejection. uh, It was very clear. He was... uh, a little bit of misorientation, but he had no no real recovery for the jet for the square corner yeah. that he had put himself into. Wow. Um, yeah, you know when we uh, when we did our check in with ops back home, you know AWACS had already called in that we had uh, the first two ship had two kills and we had two kills and and so we were coming back and and then uh, so I call in that I, uh, the only expenditures I had was fuel tanks, and uh, then my crew chief's like going. Well, they obviously got something wrong, and I go, "Well, it's a little different than than the standard, you know, mission." But you know, we did get two kills. So. Yeah, uh, he was he was a very proud crew chief to put that first green star on the jet.
0: Oh, I'm sure. So, Rico, this is the part where I always, again, I mean, I don't know, It was a human life, and I get that, and I'm not trying to say you should feel bad, but I'm just curious, what did go through? your mind when maybe not the moment you saw it, because at that point you're like, okay, this fight's over and I'm glad I didn't follow his maneuver, but does, as you're leaving, are you exhilarated? Are you a little verklempt? I mean, what goes through your mind?
1: So uh, physiologically, I can tell you that uh, I experience a very, very weird syndrome when my, I get this level of adrenaline uh, running through my body because it's, it's the only thing that doctors can say ca- can cause this. You know, once it's over, once you're you're starting to recover, you're you're flying wings level. You know, you're 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 starting to lower your heart rate. You're starting to lower your breathing. For me, my body starts to go through a series of convulsions, and I and you know, again, if I had a Go camera, it, it would have looked like a like a a, a seven point five earthquake inside <laughs> the cockpit, a seizure of every yeah, a seizure type of thing. Yeah. and so um, the first time. This this particular time, I had never experienced it before. Uh, never experienced it in any any of my other you know, dealings of what I could call high adrenaline, high rush uh, things. So I was in a I was in a complete loss. As a matter of fact, my wingman thinks that I am set, you know in the F-15. If you porpoise the airplane, it means to move further and further away. And he's looking at my airplane doing this up and down, and and he's like going. Man, what's he really mean? What's he really mean? And I'm really yeah. just trying to hold on to the airplane wow. until I could physically let go of the stick and the throttle, reach up and grab what we call in the F-15, the towel racks, mm-hmm. and hold on to that and, and just let it ride this out. And that yeah. lasted for probably a good three or four minutes.
2: Really, And,
1: uh, and I just you know, wasn't sure what it was. Uh, you know, uh, by that time, my tape had already run out, so I couldn't tell the doc, hey, this is what was going on, anything. Yeah. And so I, I talked to the doc and he goes, Hey, uh, you know, I think it's just, you know, adrenaline rush. Uh, let's, let's get you some sleep. Uh, let's get you a horse filled. so you can literally mm-hmm. find your first six hours of sleep and then, you know, we'll get you back into the airplane and start flying again. And that's kind of where I ended up, but that was the physiology that, that occurred to me Yeah. in my next events. I, I learned and I knew exactly when it started to trigger, I wanted to be wings level. I hit autopilot on and I grabbed onto the handles and I wrote it out uh, in the other two events. Oh,
0: I've had something similar. It was a result of a night trap on a carrier in pitching decks. Uh, it's, it's been chronicled on the PBS carrier special. And I've talked about it here on the show before, but it was pretty harrowing, not quite like you had, but still life-threatening and, I, you know, same, I assume with the, uh, with the Eagle is you you taxi on the ground with your rudder pedals and the brakes are at the top. Well, for us, we're doing very fine positioning to try to park our aircraft and it's pitch dark, can't barely see anything, but the director's wands, and same thing. I think the human body, I'm no physiologist, but I think it uses the big muscles. So the big core muscles in your thighs to get rid of that adrenaline. So my legs were literally just shaking as much as could be. And I'm trying to finally tune this aircraft into a parking spot. And I just remember like, what is this? Because at that point, I wasn't afraid anymore. So I was more perplexed by what is this? And then I realized later, okay, that's the adrenaline my body was using. And now it needs to get rid of it. And so it's interesting what you said that, uh, and we'll get there, I suppose. But so on the second and the third, was it less or was it still there, but at least you were familiar or.
1: Yeah, it was the exact same, uh, uh, scenario. And, uh, when people listen to our tapes from the first one to the second one, Mm -hmm. the second one, many of the guys, uh, who, and the gals who had listened to the tapes said you sounded way too calm and relaxed for the fact that you were in combat and you're getting, you're, you're getting ready to shoot down, you know, uh, some mig 23s. And, uh, and I tell the, the, the audience, I go, well, let me set the scene, you know, number one and number three, uh, myself and Rory, we both had an air to air kill already. Uh, Kimo Skiabi number two, that was his first one. And, and if you would have watched his radar tape, and listen to his in, intracom for his for his tape. He was in in high PRF uh, hyperventilation mode. <laughs> Rory and I were sitting back, you know, lighting a lucky with our feet up, you yeah. know, just la la la. But internally, if I if they'd have had fitbits back then, they would have blown up oh, with the amount of you know with the heart rates and all that that we were we yeah. were, everybody was experiencing.
0: Well, let's let's I mean let's think about this for a second. In Vietnam, we had a couple aces, at least one in the Air Force, one in the Navy that I can think of or I've top of my head, maybe more. Uh, in World War II, obviously tons in Korea, I guess some, I'm not a Korean War student, but uh, in the 90s and today, certainly, it's very rare to get a kill. I mean, we've only just finally had a kill in the Navy for the first time since Desert Storm. Yep. And so once you've done it, then the next thing would be to become an ace and to have five. And that's almost unheard of. And so for you guys, it's like, okay, no matter what, short of getting shot down, right? I've been there, done that. that The likelihood of becoming an ace is not as big a deal. Whereas for the other gentleman whose name I already forgot, this is his chance, right, to go from zero, which everybody is, to one, which is an exclusive club. So, of course, he's going to have a little bit of buck fever, I think.
1: No, you hit the nail on the head. But the real truth is uh, the advancements that we have made in in air-to-air combat, uh, especially in in the capabilities that both the radar and the Amram have today, tactically speaking, you know, you could put a two ship of Raptors in the sky or any of our airplanes in the sky and they they could come out, uh, you know, a Raptor could put eight in the air and, and an F-15C can put eight in the air. You could come out of there shooting eight missiles and killing eight targets Theoretical. um, theoretically. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the mathematical probability of, of becoming an ace is actually higher today. True. It's just that the environment that we're in is very, as much as different. Yeah. And of course, you know, the counter technology, whether it be electronic warfare, uh, ECCM, all that, you know, plays into it. And uh, and it's it's well documented. There are quite a few folks from the Desert Storm era, especially, who forgot to do Master Arm Hot, and their window of opportunity between. Uh, in the zone and, and now, uh, you know, missed shot is fleeting seconds. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they will remember Desert Storm from the standpoint of, I, I forgot to go master arm hot. And uh, so that happens too.
0: Yeah. Which is, I don't know, for me, that would eat me up in my life because I would constantly (laughs) beat myself up about it. I would, I mean, yeah, I, I might be more disappointed about that than other outcomes of air combat. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah, I agree. with you. Right. So you come back. What's it? I mean, when you guys come back into the overhead, are are you faster than normal, lower than normal? Or are you just kind of, <laughs> hey, this is what we do and we did it. And I mean, was there a lot of celebration and jubilation or is it kind of another day?
1: There wasn't a lot of celebration because uh, the bottom line was it was another day coming. You knew that you were going to be flying in, in not too many hours again. <laughs> But yeah, so my wingman and I, we had this chat uh, a couple hundred miles out, and I said, uh, "Somo, uh, what do you think?" He goes, "This is when we're allowed to do an, you know an aileron roll, right?" And uh, I go, "Well, that's kind of the way they did it in Vietnam, so let's do it." So we came in, normal speed, normal you know overhead mm-hmm. uh, speed for us. But just as we hit, uh, you know, right, right before you, uh, before the wheels would touch down, you know, I plugged in the burners. I was pretty light as it was already, you know, got the nose jacked up 30 degrees, started to accelerate, did a naileron roll and then pitched back out. Needless to say, we both got our asses chewed. Uh, Uh, my boots, my boots were not very shiny when the wing commander came out and ripped me a new one. So he, he got me for my boots. He got me for my, uh, for my aileron role. And I think he also got me for the fact that I hadn't shaved in three days because I hadn't seen a razor in three days. So
0: he was also insanely jealous. I'm just going to say right now, because he wasn't, (laughs) were you a captain or a major at this point? captain okay so he wasn't a captain anymore which is young and fearless he wasn't flying all these missions he might have flown one or two occasionally and he didn't get a kill so i'll just i'll just exonerate you on his behalf if i may all right (laughs) so this was the 19th i forget what you said 21st so a couple days later 26 26 okay a week later yeah so so it's exactly all week right Uh, flying all week and uh
1: and so actually i'm flying 114 again um and that's why she has her two stars excellent and uh so this day is uh is is a terrible weather day
0: well i hate to cut it off but that's all the time we have for this week Uh, who am i kidding we have plenty of time but come on for the price of a fancy couple Starbucks drinks, or a short Uber ride, you could help support the show and hear the rest of this exciting discussion with Rico. You'll hear all about his second mid-kill, which he uses weapons this time, as well as his third, and more importantly, how these experiences really changed him as a human. I mean, the response he got from some of his fellow pilots wasn't always very complimentary or flattering. Uh, a lot of envy involved, frankly, and he really does use these experiences both in his personal life and his business, and it's just a really great discussion. So would you please consider heading on over to patreon.com patreon.com, and search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and for a relatively small amount, you can help support the show, gain access to this and about a dozen other really great happy hour discussions, and it's the season, and you love the show, so why not? Help us out. Anyway, let me just remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and Rico, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or any of its components. Anyway, happy holidays to you. Take care of yourselves, and we'll see you here next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long.